Bienvenidos al podcast de Latino Founder Hour. Each week we invite you to spend an in-depth hour with us as we speak with a Latino startup founder from somewhere around the world. Aquí conocerás esas historias de éxito y fracasos, retos personales y lecciones aprendidas. And we have fun. We're live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Tune in at startupradionetwork.com. O en versión podcast después del show. Escucha. Listen. Aprende. Learn. Y emprende. Launch. Buenos días a todos. Bienvenidos aquí a Latino Founder Hour. Hoy viernes 25 de mayo. Mi nombre es Claudia Cárdenas. Bienvenido, Edgar. ¿Cómo estás? Muy buenos días. Muchas gracias, Claudia. ¿Cómo estás? Feliz viernes y feliz Memorial Day a todos. Un bellísimo día desde Portland, Oregon. Los saludamos en Latino Founder Hour. ¿A quién tenemos hoy, Claudia? Preséntanos. Hoy tenemos a un invitado muy importante y increíblemente yo estaba leyendo su historia y dije, wow, ¿por qué no había esto cuando mi hijo estaba pequeño? <risa> <risa> Raúl Gutiérrez, muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien, y uh, feliz viernes a, a, a ustedes también. Thank you very much. Hey, Raúl, uh, are, you, are you in Brooklyn right now? I am in Brooklyn right now. Straight from Brooklyn, Raúl. Awesome. Yeah, from coast to coast, Brooklyn to Portland. Very cool. So how's it going over there? How's the weather? Uh, it's a beautiful day today, but it's been a very weird uh, spring. <laughs> so we'll see what it's like tomorrow. Good, good. Same here. I mean, it, yeah. one day it's, uh, you know, cold, the other day super hot. Yeah, day, we yeah. used to weirdness. Like, that's why we call it, like... Keep Portland weird. Keep Portland weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But thanks for joining us, Raul. Um, uh, we read a, a, about your story, but uh, Raul is the founder of Tiny Bob. Uh, Raul, can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? You know, you know, I, we, we know you're Mexican from your Twitter handle, but where do you come from? You know, uh, where does the story of Raul come, uh, start? Sure. I think uh, my story really starts with my parents. Uh, my dad is, uh, his family is from a small town near the border in Mexico called Paras. It's in Nuevo León. And uh, his family's been there for hundreds of years. We, we have family histories that go back to, you know, 1450s. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the little graveyard there is, is full of Gutierrez's and Perez's and Hinojosa's. Um, and, um, uh, my dad, uh, was, even though he was born there and, and grew up there, his family moved to Monterey and he was always a very good student. And so when he was in college, uh, he got a, he got a scholarship to be a doctor and he came to New York to, uh, to finish his medical, medical degree. Oh, wow. Okay. And. When he was here in New York, he, he met my mom, who is an uh, Irish gal from Queens. And uh, in the second year of, of their uh, relationship, the second year of his, of his medical school, he got drafted to go to Vietnam. And so he went to Vietnam. Well, my parents decided that they wanted to get married, and my mom wanted to be pregnant in case he died. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, he went to Vietnam and my mom went to Mexico to live with my father's family oh wow and and she was indeed pregnant and I was born in in Monterey and uh, and my dad was actually still in Vietnam when 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 I was born um, but 
from the beginning, my mom didn't have much connection with her own family, and my my dad's family became her family. Uh, both my grandparents have eleven brothers and sisters, and so we have, you know, a gigantic uh, uh, family of tios and tias and cousins and wow, all in Monterrey. Cousins and, <laughs> yeah, wow, and um, and so growing up, we eventually my dad did make it back from Vietnam. Uh, we he settled in Texas, and um, throughout my childhood, we would always go back and forth. And so I would spend all my summers with my grandparents and my cousins. Um, my grandfather made lady shoes, and he was he was a loan shark on the side. <laughs> okay. And uh, when uh, you know when I would go down there, I would spend the whole summer there, and I would go out with my abuelito on his negocios. And he would often just drop me off at at the the mercado, uh, the the big big market in the middle of Monterey. And uh, so a lot of my fondest memories are of, of just wandering around this huge market and you know talking with the la curadoras and the people selling oh, food yeah. and the you know people uh, uh, telling fortunes. And they always called me El Gringo Viejo. <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, this little four or five year old kid and I had the run of the market. And, you know, as I was going through, I'd always hear these kids, uh, people shouting, um, <laughs> that's awesome. And it was amazing. It, it was really, really, you know, beautiful, uh, time there. And I had a lot of cousins and, you know, I spent, uh, you know, my summers outside basically. And we had, what I think is is the greatest uh, one of the greatest gifts you could give to any kid is my <laughs> like my abuelitos lived near a junkyard, and oh, so wow. we would go into the junkyard and we would make things and we would you know we would take apart old cars and we would make you know we would make go karts and it That's was awesome. it was a lot of freedom and the kind of freedom that I think kids often don't have anymore exactly. here or there. Yeah. Wow. Well, and this is, you know, just to, for, for the audience, Monterey back then was a fairly safe, you know, city. Oh, I yeah, think it was Monterrey. The, the, I lived in Monterrey, Nuevo León. So did I. I actually went to high school there, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I lived there for a couple of years. We were in Colonia Churubusco. Okay. Well, I lived on campus. I live in um, uh, at the Tech de Monterrey. Oh, yeah, 90, yeah. Oof. 90, well, I'm not going to give up my age. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, remember where I lived because yeah, I was so little. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but but yeah. Monterey back then was, was smaller scale. Um, it was obviously way before the problems that you have today. Yes. Uh, it was, it, you know, very, very safe and, and very neighborhood oriented. Like in our neighborhood, you know, even though all the kids would run around and spend their entire days outside, uh, there were always a network of abuelitas like looking out the window. Oh yeah, uh, keeping tabs on you. And then we would go. These same abuelitas would sell you things. So they would sell you. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, they had uh, you know paletas. Las or, tostadas. Uh huh. Cueritos. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, I know. And cohetes. They would. They handmade fireworks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it was, it was very uh, idyllic for me, and uh, I'm still very connected with my my family down there. That's that's amazing. So is, is this part of the inspiration that, that led you to create Tiny uh, Tiny Bob? Well, I, I mean, I think anytime you create a company, especially a media company, 
you know, we make, I should explain what TinyBop is. Tiny, TinyBop makes apps for kids. Uh, we make science apps and, uh, and building construction apps. And uh, it, it's something that, that you know, I, that I started, but, you know, now we have a bunch of people that work here. But the inspiration when you're creating content is, it has to come out of yourselves. And so our very first app is was something called the Human Body, and mm-hmm. if you look at the icon, it's a you know it's a icon like a medical illustration of uh, of a girl, and uh, you know you can see the, the circulatory system, the heart. But really, that the inspiration for that image is like the the pictures my grandmother would have over you know of her bed of. Uh, you know, Virgin Marys with uh, the heart. Yeah, I yeah. saw some of them. <laughs> and then Raul, I, I just, uh, I was reading that uh, you spent a lot of uh, uh, summers in uh, libraries and seeing encyclopedias and uh, uh, books, and, and you were just like uh, your curiosity of like uh, learning more was just like. Uh, you were ambitious of like more and more, and that's how you just like have all this knowledge right now. And then how like the pictures I saw the pictures they totally look like the books back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean my family story. I mean for a long time they were my family were ranchers, and you know they lived in the same place, and they had a pretty big ranch, a pretty successful ranch, but but you know it was the same story over and over again. You know, and then. My grandfather really was the first one to break that mold and go to the city and, and try different things. But always, always part of our family culture was education. And my grandfather only went to the sixth grade, but he was a great reader. Um, and, you know, my grandmother, I think, went to school one year more than him. Uh, and, and she also loved to read and would always lord the fact that she, she had more, she was more educated than he was. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, my dad uh, was somebody who, uh, you know, he was always the top of his class. You know, he always uh, was about hard work and, and reading. And in their house, they didn't have a lot of books. Uh, and so libraries were a big part of our childhood. And I grew up in a small town in Texas. And uh, where about? You know, uh, it's called Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin? It's in Lufkin, Texas. It's very deep East Texas. And back then, the town was very much split into white and black, you know, with train okay. tracks running down the middle of the town. And there really were very few people from Mexico. And so, um, you know, we were, my father experienced a lot of, you know, a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, even as a doctor there. And, um, you know, the KKK used to meet in the Civic Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It was, you know, that kind of town. Yeah. And, you know, my mom was from New York, which actually was didn't help me because she was a Yankee, the which Yankee, was just yeah. as bad. <laughs> just as bad. So uh, they, you know, they called me the, the wetback Yankee. Oh. Um, That's awful. <laughs> and, uh, wow. You know, but, you know, again, very small town. There was a library there, and that's where I would escape to. I would go to the library, and I, I would read my way Uh, through the library, and it was my way of escaping. It was my way of learning about the world. And I always compare it to living on an island, except instead of being surrounded by water, we were surrounded by trees. 
and I'm I'm almost fifty, and and back then, you know, we had one channel on on television. There was no internet, uh, so we were very very isolated, yeah. and uh, that was a way to escape, you know. And I feel like with what we're doing now here with with our little apps, it's it's a way of reaching into all those islands out there, and exactly. you know we. From the beginning, we've always made the apps in many, many languages, in 40 plus languages. Holy smokes. We sell, we sell to 150 countries. Uh, they've been downloaded by over 10 million kids around the world. That's, and, yeah, that's, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Now, now how, how did the idea come about? I mean, were, do you founded another startup before, or do you just you know had a revelation all of a sudden that you know threw you back to your childhood and this is what I want to do? You know, I, I've had a very nonlinear path. I think, uh, you know, my my dad and his generation, you know, they were always taught, you know, you work really hard and you sort of go through the system and you, you do what you need to do. And, you know, he was successful as a doctor. Uh, and, you know, he really wanted me to do something similar. My dad desperately wanted me to be a, a doctor. <laughs> and I spent a lot of my childhood, you know, around the hospital. But I hated blood. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I did not want to be a doctor. Yeah. And um, so I was always interested in science and engineering and arts. Uh, I, from my little town, I really wanted to escape. And so I, I applied to colleges far away. I got into Princeton. Um, and, you know, it was very unusual for somebody from a small town like, like mine uh, to go to a school like Princeton, you know, when I went there, it was, it, I was, very, I felt like I was very far behind, uh, a lot of the other kids that were there. Um, so, and I, I went as, I went as an engineer, but yeah. I actually, actually ended up graduating with a degree in art history, which to my, my father's generation was like the worst thing that you could do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I mean, they, I, I think a lot of, parents who have worked very hard, especially, you know, if you manage to get into one of these schools, they really want you to do a degree that's practical and that's, you know, that has a linear, uh, uh, that, you know, you know, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer when yeah. you come out of it. Um, but I didn't, and I'd always had this, uh, I, I always loved engineering and I always loved art and I didn't know how to put those two things together. Uh, but I was always looking for those kind of opportunities. So um, uh, I had uh, some tragedy in my family right after school. My mom died, my brother died, and I, uh, you know, I really was thrown by that, didn't know what I wanted to do, and I had a friend that had moved out to Hollywood and, uh, and had set up out there, and... He called me, and just out of luck, on my, my very first night in L.A., I, I met another guy who was a, a Mexican guy who was who was uh, also sort of a secret Mexican. Like, if you met me, you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> know I was Mexican. Um, and so we had this in common, and we were talking about it. And he said, well, you know, I work for this producer. We hire and fire a lot of people. Uh, it's a very intense office. Maybe you should just come in. And so my second day in L.A., I, I was you know, going through the Paramount gates. Oh, wow. I, I managed to get this, this very lowly job, uh, at Paramount. Um, but then 
the office was so intense that people kept getting fired. And I kept moving up, uh, not through particularly good work of my own, but just through uh, attrition. attrition. <laughs> um, and I had never actually met my boss, who was a very infamous Hollywood producer. And uh, Is that the guy in the news today? He's not on the, in the news today, although I did, we, did, we did work with him uh, on, on a couple of movies. But my boss was sort of equally infamous, and, uh, and I picked up the phone. It was the first time I'd actually spoken to him on the phone. And uh, there was myself and this other guy named Bo Flynn. And he, you know, he said, who's there? And I said, my name is Raul. And he did not like the sound of my name. He said, Raul what? I said, Raul Gutierrez. And he said, who else is there? And, you know, the, the other guy was named Bo Flynn. And his answer was, great, a beaner and a porn star. Well, oh. you guys figure it out. Oh, my God. And, and one of you has to get on a plane to New York because I just fired the guy here. Um, and so, what a, what a dick! <laughs> for the next for the next several years, I worked for this guy, and uh, and working in the film business is is a lot like startup world. Uh, every movie is basically a startup. Mm -hmm. You know, you start with an idea, you have to hire people, you have to you have to uh, pitch it. Yeah, you have to pitch it. You have to you know get money and. And even working for this guy who was, who was uh, not a nice human being, um, I became sort of uh, the, the person in the office that had to make things work. And so because of that, you know, I worked probably on 10 different movies. And through that period, even though I didn't realize it, I was building the, the muscles I needed for startup world. Wow. And, um, yeah. and then... Uh, you know, eventually, after I'd done that for several years, uh, you know, this this same boss was was being uh, uh, doing something awful, and I just quit. Um, and so I, I not just quit the the job; I actually quit the film business. I, I just decided if I'd seen enough uh, about about it to realize that the type of things that I was interested in doing and interested in building, I wasn't sure if it if it made sense for me to be there. And, uh, again, I'd always, it was always this mix of art and tech. So I, I, uh, I started doing some web stuff. I got involved in a startup that, uh, that sold art online and, um, and that became pretty successful. And then I was there for a couple of years. And when I left there, I gave myself, uh, a couple of months to figure out my own thing. So, and so, so Raul, you would think that this was your defining moment of like, what do you wanted to do in the future? Uh, I, I think actually my defining moment was I had always worked for other people. And even when I worked at that other startup, I had always worked for other people. And it was sort of like, again, it was our family culture. We're hard workers. <laughs> you know, we know how to work. Yes. And I had always, I had always done a I think good work for other people and built equity in other people, exactly. but I had I had not built equity in myself. Yes, and then and when when did you decide? Like, okay, this is it. I need to start doing my own thing. Like, how old were you? Well, I was old. I was uh, forty. I was you know forty two, uh -huh. forty three, um, and you know I just I had I just left this other job. And I had been offered a few jobs that were 
on paper, very nice jobs. They're, you know, working for big companies, big paycheck. And I met a friend of mine who I went to college with, who's a very successful entrepreneur. And we had dinner together and he said, you absolutely, absolutely should not take these corporate jobs. It would be a complete waste of time. He said, you know, if you, if you work for them, you're, you're, you know, you're giving your talent to the corporation. You're in your forties, you know, by the, by the time you finish, this is the last job you're ever going to do. And he said, I, I've known you since you were 18. You have a lot of ideas. You're a creative person. You know, what's the risk of doing it on your own? And I said, well, the risk is failing. And, you know, I have yeah. a family at this point. I have two kids. Um, you know, I don't have any backup. I don't have, uh, I don't have, uh, you know, any money to, to go back on to. I, I, you know, I need, I need a job just to, to pay the bills. And then by this um, time you have kids already. Yeah. Yeah. But this found, wow. two, two young kids. Yes. And, and he said, yeah, but you know, if you don't do this, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. Um, and I was kind of angry at it. Like when we had the conversation, I was, I was pretty angry at him. I, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was pretty arrogant of, You know, this guy who had come from a very wealthy family who had had, you know, a lot of advantages, who had, who had been very successful and, you know, was a millionaire many times over to be saying this to, to me because I didn't have those kind of options. But I realized that there was something true in it as well. And I felt like, you know, I, I've never thought of myself as being the person that's starting something, but I have... I, I know I've built other people's companies. I built a lot of equity in other people. And why not do that in myself? For the claro. Yes. And so I gave myself a timeline. You know, I gave myself a couple of months and I took some freelancing work uh, to, you know, to pay the bills. And I put myself in a co-working space with a bunch of creative people. And luckily in New York, there's a really great culture of co-working spaces. And uh, so the, the one I was in was called Studio Mates. It doesn't exist anymore, but there were a lot of really inspirational people that were, that were part of, of that group. And, you know, we were in this crappy, crappy building, <laughs> but we all had internet and computers, and that's kind of all we needed. And so I, I was, uh, this was around 2012. I knew that cell phones were taking over the world. Mm -hmm. yes. I could imagine, I, you know, when I would go to Mexico, I would see that, You know, Mexico had a better cell phone network than we did here in the States. And all my cousins had, had phones before, you know, before people in the States had phones. Um, so I knew that there was this global thing happening that was really powerful. And I wanted to tap into it. And the truth is I wasn't thinking so much about, about uh, educational apps or apps for kids at all. Um, I was thinking about a bunch of other things. I was working on some translation ideas and... Uh, you know, a whole host of, of, uh, of, other, of other startup ideas. And in the middle of this process, um, my kid, who was my older son, he's also Raul Gutierrez. Uh, so he was going to have his kindergarten birthday party. And he came to me and he said, Dad, I don't need a birthday party. Just give me an iPhone. Um, and I was horrified. 
you know, the birthday for a six year old, for a kindergartner, a birthday party is like the, the centerpiece of their year. Yeah. You know? yes. And the, the idea that he was going to sell out all his friends, you know, for this thing, um, it seemed like bad to me. It seemed like uh, that he put too much, he loved this thing too much. Um, and so, but instead of being angry, I just started talking to him. And I said, you know, why is it that, that you want an iPhone? And he started explaining to me little by little. And eventually what we got to is he said, well, you know, the phone is, a, it's an everything machine. It can be a toy. It can be a friend. It can tell stories. Um, and it, then... It is pretty terrifying, isn't it? Yes, it is very <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Well... And then I really started looking at what he was consuming and what he was doing. You know, he was using it as a tool. He was taking pictures. He was uh, reading books. Um, and I realized that a lot of my frustration with the content that he was consuming was that it was really, like, a lot of the kids' content in particular was really poorly made. And it wasn't as good as those children's books that I used to read when I was a kid. And the science material wasn't as good as those, you know, those science encyclopedias that I used to, like, read through. And I thought, well, I think I know how to build something that is as good as those, those great children's books. And that is as deep and, and can cover a subject as deeply as those things. And there is a way, I think, to make it even more interesting than a children's book because, you know, rather than just showing a picture of the water cycle, hmm. we can make it rain. You yeah, know, you we can make can an animation. We, yeah. we can. Well, it's not even an animation. We can use we can use physics to actually have a kid interact with a cloud and to to simulate rain. You know, not just a looping animation that's, yeah. that's something that's repetitive. But the interact, the, being interactive with the user. Being interactive. And so that that's sort of the special sauce of, of what we do. Um, I call it the salsa. Uh, <laughs> the special so, salsa. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we, we um, everything that we do is about these physics-based interactions. So it's not not just a repetitive, uh, you know, animation that, that goes over and over again. It's something that when the kid interacts, It, it feels and it looks real. And so, you know, in the human body app, uh, it's, it's a little human body. You have all the different systems. Kids can feed, feed it if they want to. You know, food goes in one end, poop comes out the other end. Yeah. Uh, if they feed it too much, <laughs> you know, it might... Might throw up. Where where <laughs> where were you when I needed you? Like I have a 16 years old, and uh, it, this was like part of like my life too. Like where I need to go and, and grab like cards and then try to make my son. Uh, study. study and then being like focused on yeah. uh, paper and then books and and that. So luckily he liked books, but you you. You try to show a kid right now, a six-year-old, uh, a book, and no. they're not going to consume that. Yes, it's there's, too well, static. There's some. It's too static, there, yeah. there are some kids that they they love reading. Yeah, but there are kids that are like, no, there's that. There's something that uh, they they're not interested, uh, especially nowadays with all these video games and and social media and 
well, like we we don't spend time like we used to before. No, and and, and we're not going to go back. I mean, the, the then, people. No, exactly. that's, this, this is it. Exactly. So, well, do you find the need in this industry? Like, I would love to have that <laughs> back then. That's amazing. Well, so I think what we do is we try to look at. I look at my childhood. I look at my parents' childhood. I look at my abuelito's childhood, and we try to say what things have always been true. Um, what 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 have kids always needed? And everything that we build, we try to do it in a way that is respectful of children and that is child-centered. And so when we create, we call our apps uh, digital toys because they're not, they're not passive things where a kid is just sitting and doing something. They, they don't really come to life until a child starts playing with them. Um, and we try very much to, to always uh, be the, the, the beginning of a conversation. So we're, we're not giving kids all the answers about what happens. So we have a, you know, a space app or a weather app. Mm -hmm. In those apps, we're not, we don't have long sections of text like explaining what's happening. What we do is we allow them to you know, play until something happens and hopefully they can understand what's happening. The process, and, yeah. But, but even, even more importantly, hopefully they start asking questions. Nice, And yeah. hopefully they, they start talking to their parents and their teachers. And we're not anti-book at all. In fact, I love books. Our office, we have a giant children's library of books in all sorts of languages here. Um, it, but I think that we have modeled, we have, every time you look at your phone in front of your kid, you're telling your kid that that phone is important, that that screen is important. And so it's something they learn from a very young age. And so, of course, they think it's important, too. Um, and I think it's our responsibility is to give them the best that's available on yeah. that, on and, that, no, in that and format. Agreed. Yes, and then now, like nowadays, uh, as parents, like I see uh, a lot of like six-year-olds like carrying their iPad yeah. with them, with books in there. Yeah. Like they're not even like going to the library; they're just downloading books, and that's the interaction yeah. right now. Like there's not even like well, even homework. There's no books. There's no textbooks. Yes. Everything is on a computer exactly. or on an iPad. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah it, well, and, and like anything, there's good content. There's bad content. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, one of the interesting facts about Mexico in particular is that Mexico is a huge consumer of online content. Yes. Um, uh, in Mexico, uh, people in Mexico consume more YouTube content than any other country in the world per capita. Yeah. I, I'm not sure mm. that's true now, but it was true a year ago. Yeah, and um, we're the number one users of Twitter, number one consumer in Disney. Yeah, there, there's a lot of statistics about you well, know our, our usage and just technology in general. Like I yeah. remember, I mean, uh, how like taxis before taxis now it's Uber. Like where everything is just like on top of your hands. Like it's easy, it's simple, and then and it's a lower cost. Like Netflix before we used to have like yeah. blockbusters. Now it's just like they disappear. Now, now but I had a question for, for you. How do you um? How do you start a company? Was was it you that you just funded yourself? How, what was the process? You know, not, uh, you know, leading your first startup and uh, and saying, "Wow, I'm going to do this." Uh, you know, you were telling us that you were freelancing, but yeah, how do so, you launch it and how did you make it grow? So when I started, 
I really had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, I, I read, there was a little bit about, you know, startups and blogs and, and, you know, it was just starting to be a culture of people kind of explaining like how they pitch companies. Mm -hmm. But even in 2011, 2012, there wasn't that much online for somebody like me that wasn't in San Francisco, you know, for, uh, so the first thing I had to do is, 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 I, I didn't have the means to fund it myself and uh, or even close. And so I knew that I needed to raise enough money to pay for a small team of people for at least a year. And in New York, that's expensive. And yeah. so, you know, if you're if you're talking about four or five people and, you know, average salary between, you know, 60 and 100 K. Uh, you know, very quickly adds up to real money. Yeah. And so, um, so I just, again, I read everything I could online. Luckily there were a few good blogs and they had, they had lists of investors and, you know, I started cold emailing them and a lot of them just didn't email back. And so I, I at first I just didn't feel like I had a way in. And then I met somebody who had started a, a similar startup and he said, the best thing you can do is get yourself a good lawyer. He said that there are startup lawyers that this is, this is what they do and they know everybody because they're in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. And if you can convince them that you have a good idea, then they will help you with those initial contacts. So the first thing I did for myself is I created a, a deck showing what the vision was very, very uh, succinctly. So it was a deck that said, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is who's going to build it. This is what it's going to cost. This is what we think that, you know, it's, it can be, you know, this is what it can grow into. And it was you know, not a huge deck. It was maybe 15, 20 pages long. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, and we built a brand book. So th that, that was something that we did that was really unusual. Um, I imagined what the company could be and what the brand could be. And I created, you know, a brand book. A brand book has a logo. It has the colors. Yep. But it also imagines how your brand looks in different, uh, in different scenarios. What it looks like on the web what it would look like on the app store, what it would look like in a toy store, you know, what it would look like at Target. And um, and so I went to the lawyer. I got I got a, a, a fancy lawyer. They said, we're not going to charge you anything uh, up front. You know, we're going to introduce you. And if we, you know, if you get funding, uh, this is, you know, we're going to take a percentage of, of that. And, you know, and... and uh, you know, that sort of, and they, they really helped me sort of know what to be asking for. Like, I didn't really even know back then the difference between a convertible node and a seed round and a, a round, all that was terminology that I, you know, I sort of understood it in the old fashioned way. You buy a percentage of a company. I was not, I was not, uh, educated in startup lingo or, or dynamics. So, 
And and it was just you. I mean, you didn't have any co-founders. Nobody else I helping you. Do. Wow. So yeah. so it this was, package. That's a lot of work. This package that you presented was your business plan, basically. No, no, basically. just a deck. Yeah, well, well basically. It, it, was, it, was, it, it. Was a, it was it was a deck and a brand book, which is which is unusual. It, it's not yeah. again. I didn't really know what I was doing, so so I did it in a way that I thought you know that I could present the vision of what it could be. Okay. And so then the lawyer. He gave me introductions. So he wrote emails to all the big VC firms here in New York. And he told me, he said, you get one shot. You <laughs> yeah. get one meeting. So with, with each of these guys, you get a 30-minute meeting. And, um, and that's it. And you, 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 know, you have your pitch. So maybe don't do the most important one first. Um, and so you know, I had my series of, of pitch meetings and they're just like you see in the movies you know you go into a fancy conference room and mm -hmm. you present your deck and they they try to poke holes in it um and the truth is that the first couple went pretty pretty badly <laughs> uh but by listening carefully to the questions they were answering after each meeting i would go down and write down you know everything they had asked me and made sure that i had good answers for them mm -hmm. for the next meeting and so yeah, probably it's a, by the, good practice run. Yes. Yeah. And so probably by the third time, I, I had some pretty good. I, I had a good pitch and a good, um, a, a good story, uh, or a good business story. But I didn't have the personal story. I didn't have that story. I wasn't telling the story about my kid and the iPhone. And it really wasn't until, uh, you know, I, there was one investor that I met that that he got back and he said, "Well, but what inspired? Like, why are you sitting here?" Like what's what? Why are you getting out of bed to do this every day? And I told that story about my kid and 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 the phone, and that story was really the thing that sort of kicked it over. And um, and so you know I had a few people you know commit to first fifty k and then a hundred k, and then you know eventually I think our first uh, convertible or the first seed round was 800k and we were getting very close to being done but we still had a ways to go and then i met uh mitch kapoor um so mitch kapoor is a legendary investor from kapoor He's capital somebody, and in the valley kapoor capital yeah, in the Cape, valley yeah and he and his wife frida uh are very very committed to um to bridging gaps. And so they want to fund companies that uh, have been started by people that uh, are not the same uh, people that, you know, that you normally see running startups. Yeah. Um, and so they're looking for diversity in their founder pool. Um, they're looking for women, but most importantly, they're looking for companies that are solving problems and bridging gaps. Mm -hmm. And when I went to them, I actually didn't know any of this. I just knew he was Mitch Kapoor, who who had, you know, started Lotus Notes and was one of the first investors in Uber. Um, I didn't know that at all. And so my pitch was really about what we were going to build. It wasn't about it wasn't about solving those kind of problems. But that's something that we really care about, and it, it, we've just never spoken about it out loud. And so I had this pitch with them, and they said. We like what you're doing, but you don't really fit our thesis. 
come back to us and tell us how you would, you know, how you're, how you're bridging these gaps. Tell us about that part of the story. And again, it was something that we had always, it was very important to us and we thought about, but we'd never said it out loud. And so uh, myself, and at this point I had two or three people that were working with me, uh, we sat down and we, we wrote out that part of the story. And it actually became a very important part of the company because um, I wasn't trying to do this, but at the beginning, you know, most of the people I was working with originally were women. So we had a majority female company, uh, you know, founded by somebody who's sort of a secret Mexican, but <laughs> has a very Mexican name. Uh, and, and, and from the beginning, we were committed to uh, producing apps that reached everybody, especially kids that are on the other side of the economic divide. And we were doing that not just in, in the languages that we include in the app, but also in how we represent children and the types of stories that we tell in the apps and how we test the apps. Like, you know, a lot of times a child that has had a lot of advantages sees the world very differently than a child, you know, that is, has not had oh, the absolutely. same advantages. They, they live in completely and, different worlds. Yes. And so, so we went back to, to Mitch and Frida with, with that. Uh, they agreed to be, uh, to come into the round. And, and then from there on, it was relatively easy because they were, you know, there were such big names that suddenly everybody else was paying attention. Um, so we had our seed money. And from there, we actually had to build what we said we were going to build. And so we gave ourselves uh, eight months. And so from January into August of 2013, we built our first app. We built the 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 product and 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 also basically built the company. And the first app was was called the Human Body. And I think our our goal for our first two months or first month and a half was something like eight thousand downloads. And everybody said you're crazy. You can't do it. There's there's no way the app store. There's a million apps in the app store. And, nope, and, there's and, no way to get get seen. There's no way to get recognized. Um, but we had a plan and, and I think a, a pretty good one. Um, we, because we're all involved in children's media, uh, we, while we were building the app, we created a blog about children's media. It's still up tinybop.com slash loves. And it was about children's media that we love. And we started a mailing list and we, we slowly built a pretty good mailing list. Um, of like-minded people that really care about ch good children's media. Um, we created a, a video where we interviewed kids, and they're just Brooklyn kids that, that we found, you know, uh, by posting flyers around. They're just kids off the street, but very diverse group of kids. And we just asked them what they were curious about. Um, we didn't show our product at all. So we, you know, the whole video, again, which is still up online on oh, our Vimeo page, uh, is just kids saying, you know, I wonder, you know, why octopuses uh, squirt when they could kick. They have eight legs. Um, I wonder why, you know, and the whole video is basically just these kids wondering these things. We put that video online and it managed, it went viral. It, a whole bunch of people started uh, sharing it, linking to it. 
Um, I so love before, it. That's amazing. Before we actually launched our first app, um, somebody from Apple actually called us. And they said, we keep seeing your name. And you, they say that you're developing <laughs> these iOS apps. And, um, and who are you guys? And, like, what are you doing? And so, you know, we, we didn't really know the whole drill with Apple because uh, there's a whole procedure about uploading the apps and mm-hmm. uh, they want things very early. We thought that we had to wait until the very end and until everything was done. Um, but they really wanted to see, you know, work in progress. And they really liked it. And so the app was launched August 15th. Um, I, on the first day, we had we had almost 10,000 downloads. Holy smokes. Um, it was launched, launched on the homepage of the App Store. <laughs> and uh, then a month later, we did uh, a month later we did a promotion with Apple, in which they featured us as like a free app of the week. Um, and we gave you know we we're giving the app away at that point, but we got worldwide exposure. And so uh, before that promotion, we had asked, "Well, what do you expect?" And they said, "Well, you know, with good promotion, maybe you get a hundred thousand downloads in the week." Uh, on the first day, we got eight hundred thousand downloads. Holy smokes! Um, by the end of the first week, we had you know four million something downloads, and so that really established us. And then, once we had that exposure, then investors were coming to us, and we closed an A round that allowed allowed us to uh, to really build up the company. And then, since then, we've now launched sixteen apps. Uh, every single one of them is launched on the homepage of the App Store. And now we're sort of transitioning a bit. We're still making apps, but uh, our, a lot of our focus is on uh, something called Tiny Bop Schools that is, uh, takes the same content from the apps and makes it available to schools around the world. It's web-based because we found, especially in other parts of the world, uh, the web is still, you still have to be on yeah. the web. Yeah, and um, and we think it's going to be a big part of the future of the company. So, uh, so that's that's our our current focus. So you can download uh, in other countries. Uh, with with apps, our apps absolutely have been downloaded in 150 some odd countries around the world. Uh, virtually every country in the world, they've been uh, at some point uh, the number one education app for sure, number one kids app. Uh, in many cases, they've been the number one app in the app store. Wow. Um, That's around amazing. The world. That's amazing. It is amazing. Um, one of our apps, the Robot Factory, was app of the year uh, two years ago. And um, and then Tiny Bop Schools uh, is available, you know, wherever there's an uh, internet connection. And we give a free trial to, to teachers and administrators who are trying to set it up. And everything we do is localized. So, uh, a lot of in a lot of places, the apps are now being used to teach uh, to teach English because you know it'll be available in Spanish or Arabic or mm-hmm. you know whatever language, and then they'll switch to English to teach the terminology wow. to kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's a great. Then, yeah. Here in the U.S., it's it's often used in classrooms where you have a bunch of different languages in the classroom. So you know, oh, one teacher right. in, in San Francisco told me there were. There were 14 languages in our classroom, and we cover <laughs> all of them. Yes, 
That's amazing. I mean, you created definitely uh, something that is the, the, that is in need out there, and and they're not. Uh, and it's and it's filling here. out a void. Exactly, yeah. it's awesome. So, um, Raúl, let us do the ads because we're almost done, and then we're just gonna come back with you, and we're gonna wrap up because our time is almost over. So I will start. Shout out with a yes, our first sponsor. So our first sponsor is CPA Dude, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Customers decide the value of them. They don't charge you for sending any invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. <laughs> Find them at cpadudes.com startup radio. And our second one is Porkbunk. Porkbun domains, websites and internet commerce for the rest of us. Don't be a pig. Porkbun, where you can get website domains for your business or personal brand with the lowest prices and amazing free services. Uh, but Raul, uh, so we want to wrap it up. We got about five minutes. And so where do you see the, the trajectory of uh, Tiny Bob and yours personal in the next couple of years? Where, where, I mean, are you guys heading for an exit? Uh, I mean, if you, if you can talk about it, if not, you know. Uh, I think, you know, we're it, Tiny Bob is at a very exciting moment. So we're we're launching this this school's product, which I think will allow us to grow um, significantly in the app market. I think we'll you know, we'll still continue to do great work there. And we're just about to start working with uh, some folks on licensing physical products. So okay. going back to books, I've always wanted it wanted to take children's books. Uh, <laughs> I still think that there is a, a market for for beautiful, thoughtful books for kids that are very inclusive and that that, um, that tell children's stories. Sometimes maybe from not from different perspectives, um, and it's something that we'd love to do. And so we think that we can. We can be a very meaningful children's brand on, on a worldwide scale. And we're starting to work, especially overseas, with partners that I, I think should be able to get us to that scale. That's um, amazing. And, you know, in, in some other, you know, in China, for example, right now, they think very, very big. And uh, I just came back from Shenzhen. And the ambition uh, that you see there is is incredible. And they're really thinking about how do we rethink education for, you know, the next generation of kids, because the jobs that those kids are going to be doing haven't been imagined yet. Yeah. So how do we how do we make them curious, open thinkers? You know, how do we give them the tools for that? And and. Luckily, they see our apps as one of the tools to, to, to help do that. And, and actually so, disrupt the, the, the whole education model. I think we had guests in the past where we, we you know, discussed that. I mean, I think that our current education model from K to 12, it's, it's, in due, for a, it's due for a you know, complete uh, overhaul. Well, what we see, we, you know, we're connecting with schools around the world. And what we see is actually the United States is actually one of the hardest cases because it's so... Uh, it really is just stuck in the past in a lot yeah. of ways. It's rigid, and yeah. It's rigid, and there's a lot of, you know, bureaucratic fighting, and it seems very hard to make meaningful change. Whereas, you know, places like Mexico and Sweden and China, we're really seeing like a lot of 
interesting things. It's just like cell phones, you know, just like cell phones around the world leapfrog the United States. I, I think that maybe the same thing is starting to happen in education as well. Wow. So, so, so do, I mean, from the front lines, do, do you think we're going to be lagging for for a while if 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 you know if we don't catch up pretty soon? I think. Uh, you know, if you look at our politics right now, maybe we already are lagging. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Thank you. Touché. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> and we have bank sales for schools, the richest company in the uh, the richest uh, the richest country in the world. We have to have bake sales to support our schools. It's bizarre. Exactly. It, it That's true. I, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I think you know my own story has always been about education, and my my mm -hmm. parents, my grandparents, they they did everything they could to fill us with as much knowledge as they could. And, yes. and we do the same thing. My wife exactly. is Korean. Yes. Oh, wow. You know, that's her culture as well. It's amazing. Uh -huh. It's Sorry. the one thing that a society, you know, other than health, giving a kid a fair playing field so that every kid has a good education and access to that, it's, it's, the, it's the most fundamental thing you can do. Absolutely. I, and I just remember, you know, from my parents always pushing towards higher education and great education. It's like, look, and, and this is ingrained in my brain. The only thing that we're going to leave you ultimately is your education. Yes. None of yeah. And this is the most important part. So That's pass true. it on. So now as a father. And, and everything yeah. starts uh, when you're a kid. And then I am so pro of like reading books to your kids still and uh, showing them. And then, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I don't read as much like as I want to. But uh, my son was reading since like a little, little kid. Like yeah. he learned how to read when he was four years old. And uh, now he, he says, uh, it's amazing how I can write an essay without reading the whole book is yeah. like because they have like this imagination and they know what the book is about yeah. so it's just like their their minds are just amazing well, my kids are 11 and 13 and I still read to them and they they, they they seem to love it so I you know I asked my my kids the other day like do you think at some point you're going to be too old and you won't want to be read to oh no <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing. That is so cool. Well, so so you, know, you said your your wife is is Korean. So we would love to have a you know an, you know another conversation. How you keep you know yes uh, internationalizing if that's a word. Uh, I know this is very cool. That, very that's amazing. We, yeah, yes. uh, I wish we had more time to to go into that and the importance of um, mixed cultures in a household. How that enriches. Uh, because I'm, you know, I'm also com coming from a uh, mixed household. Yes. As well, and you know, even though it's well, just, it, it all starts with food. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that's where we should have started. <laughs> my, my wife learned to cook all my abuelita's recipes, and oh. she cooks the best Mexican food in New York. Awesome. So. And, and then, can you imagine Korean and Mexican, and the Mexican. Korean fusion? Yes. Like, the, oh, we have some amazing, you know, places here with uh, yeah. koi fusion. The, koi the, fusion. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the, the taquitos. The, the Korean tacos. Oh, oh yes. my gosh. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist with that, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, no, it is amazing that, you know to have them next to each other, and uh, you know we're we're constantly learning from each other's cultures as well too. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, well thank you, Raúl. Uh, thank you our so time. much, Raúl. That was amazing. You know, hope, hopefully we can have you back in the show in, in a few weeks, and we can talk you know a little bit more about 
you know, what, what we left pending, you know, yes, where, where do you go from here? Uh, but right now it's lunchtime. It's noon here in Portland. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for following us in Latino Founder Hour. Raul Gutierrez from Tiny Bob. Uh, thank you so much. Have a, an amazing Memorial Day weekend. Claudia, enjoy your Friday. Thank Raul, you. muchísimas gracias por estar aquí y muchas felicidades. Thank you, Raul. Gracias para todo. Hasta luego. Thank you. You've been listening to the Latino Founder Hour podcast with your hosts, Edgar Navas, founder of Clica, and Claudia Cardenas. El programa Latino Founder Hour es grabado en las instalaciones de NetSpace en el estudio Bigfoot Podcast en la hermosa ciudad de Portland. Our audio engineer, mixer, and podcast editor is Alain Beausoleil. Diseñador de logo, Carolyn Main. Our network logo was designed by Jessica Chan. Diseñador de sitio web, Cameron Grimes. Our production assistant is Chelsea Lancaster. Tema de música, Funning and Sunning, de Kevin McLeod. Cree en ti mismo, sueña en grande y confía en el universo, de Marta Leticia y Silvia Romero.